Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Challoner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on today's show on what is a sunny spring morning here in the capital is James Dean. James is an entrepreneur and business leader who is managing director at Western Building Consultants and a host of other companies working across several industries. Uh, James, very warm welcome to yourself this morning and thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Morning, Scott. Good morning, James. Um, Now, I think we should start by addressing the elephant in the room here, and that is the fact that we are recording this podcast in late May. And so we are still very much in the grip of the COVID-19 pandemic and have been for the best part of 14 months now. Um, So even though we are hopefully coming to the end of this, looking back over those last 14 months, to what extent has all of this affected you and affected your businesses? It's affected it hugely. Um, some things positive and some things negative. And um, I think because we, uh, we we look after quite a few different types of business in different sectors, um, we've seen quite how dramatic it's been in some and, and in others actually it's been quite positive. Um, so um, uh, first and foremost, I'm my sort of main business, which is Western Building Consultants. Um, the When the first lockdown happened, we had a, a really big drop off in sales. And obviously that was a, a big challenge for us. Um, and uh, we were able to kind of um, adapt to that quite quickly um, and, uh, and enabled us to, um, although the first sort of two to three months were, were challenging, the furlough scheme naturally sort of helped us um, kind of get through that period. And because of the restructuring that we did, um, we were actually able to come out in the kind of third and fourth months with, with a little bit of growth on our, our pre-COVID target. So, yeah, it's very sort of positive um, from that side. Um, even though, of course, it's been a period of growth for the business and that is immensely positive, I can imagine that particularly in the early weeks of the pandemic, there were maybe one or two sort of anxious faces where you had to sort of step in, show some leadership and try and guide people and their mental well-being as well. Yeah, I think, um, you know, even myself, I'm, I class myself as a very positive person. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the very first month, I think I was I was almost um, blindsided by it. I, I didn't see it coming and I, I, I sort of really struggled mentally to get myself back on track to, to where I should be. Um, and uh, I'm very lucky to have around me some, some very good business coaches, actually, and, and I was able to kind of work with them to kind of work through that and, and help push the businesses forward and, and keep everything moving. So, yeah, even as a leader um, in a business, I think it's important, as you say, there to consult people who are also experienced in the business world, isn't it? Because even at the top of a company, we're not infallible. Um, We are at times going to need to consult people to seek advice. And there is absolutely nothing wrong with that. And certainly for those younger people out there that may be tuning into this podcast and are of the entrepreneurial stock and, and maybe in the early days of running their own business, I think seeking out people who are more experienced is probably one of the best things that they can do, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, finding and building the right team around you, um, whether that's outsourced or in-house, is is so important. And I think um, I'm very grateful that I've got an excellent business partner as well, who um, I've actually known for a very long time, Sam, who um, 
I actually went to university with, so I've known him for a very long time and trust him. Um, I think the the biggest anxiety for me was the whole COVID thing is um, we we built our business around stability and trying to be um, stable and being uh, spreading the types of service that we provide so that we we aren't susceptible to sort of harsh changes in the market as much. and it was the human factor for me. I had this kind of realization that I'd been working on this business for over 15 years and all of a sudden it, it could all disappear overnight and all the people that work for me would lose their jobs. And that's what I felt really strongly um, that, that I was worried about more than anything, to be honest. Mm. And sort of looking back over the last 14 months as a whole, would you say that you've actually learned something from this experience of having to manage the businesses through this crisis? Yeah, a hundred percent. So, um, I mean, as a business, we, we were around in 2009 when the sort of financial crash happened. And, um, what, uh, what I've learned from it is actually you can get through anything with good planning. <laughs> um, and no matter what sort of, um, kind of, uh, business you're in, I think if you can uh, diversify and, and make the business, um, um, be as diverse as possible in terms of, uh, of what it offers, and, and you can really plan for these events. Um, and because something that actually managed, I managed to bring the business back on track um, was through a series of um, kind of um, financial planning exercises and modelling. Uh, again, with a really good accounts team to actually look at where we would take the business um, in the eventuality that sales didn't come back, and how we'd need to structure the teams and all these sorts of things. And, and now we've done that exercise it, it's kind of it's in place and it will need updating but we've got this great kind of fallback plan if you like which is something that we probably didn't have in place before so yeah we really learned that that fallback planning is super important and do you think the pandemic period has forever changed the way that we do business in this country and indeed sort of our working practices as well in tandem with that yeah 100 percent um, so, um, in a normal year, our workload is spread between about uh, 70% residential and 30% commercial. And a lot of that work is, is kind of offices and hospitality in that commercial sector. And of course, that's taken a massive hit. And um, I think um, offices, although there, there will be um, offices, I think it's going to be a very different landscape to probably what we've had um, pre COVID. Yes, that's certainly a sector that's going to undergo some real change as well. And I think um, another industry that's really going to see some changes, and I appreciate, of course, this isn't your forte, James, is the aerospace industry, the travel industry as well, because time efficiency, not having to sort of travel around abroad, especially in all over the country to attend sort of half hour business meetings. There's a new focus on sustainability now as well. So all of these things are all coming into the equation when we're discussing what our working practices are going to look like, aren't they? So there's going to be much change. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And uh, as you said, you know, aerospace industry is sort of very dear to my heart. I'm from Bristol and we've got a big aerospace industry here and um, many members of my family and extended family have worked in that aerospace industry. So, um, you know, that will have a a probably lasting effect on on, on that industry in this area. Um, Hopefully the the kind of uh, raw talent for engineering will attract other things that that come up in its place in in the southwest. And just thinking about sort of psychology over the course of the year, the pandemic, um, when you are sort of staring down the barrel at such a uh, sort of difficult situation, what is it that sort of drives you and motivates you to sort of keep going? Of course, when you're an employee, I suppose that you have people to look up to 
um, within a business. You have your executives, you have your CEO, but when you are in that position and you are sort of at the top of the tree, as it were, um, it can feel quite lonely at the top, I suppose, can't it? It, it can do. And I think um, I think that's where, as I said before, my, my business partner, I'm extremely lucky because um, I've got, so it's not quite so lonely. And um, that was one of the things that um, I would definitely recommend to people, uh, sort of, especially in small businesses, is if you can find a business partner you can trust and work with, um, it does make it a lot less lonely at the top. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I, I mean, in terms of, uh, of what drives me on, it, it's really um, succeeding so we, we can keep people in employment and we can keep growing and, and employing people because that's something that um, um, really sort of motivates me is actually, um, you know, over the last um over the last year, we've actually added about six people to our team. So it's, for me, that's really positive. Um, and I think, uh, yeah, that's, that's something that sort of spurs me on, really. And just thinking about sort of your personal leadership style, we've talked about how you've learnt an awful lot from the, uh, the pandemic in various ways. Would you say you've sort of changed the way that you lead the company as a result of it as well? Um, I don't think so. I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a, what I would call a, a very relaxed leader. So, um, um, we, we tend to, um, my business partner and I have very um, alternative kind of strategies when it comes to leadership, I would say. We're a bit good cop, bad cop, um, but it, it works quite nicely. We work in quite, quite balance. And um, I think um, something uh, that, that he, he's very, very detail focused and I, I'm a very um, kind of um, broad thinker, um, sort of um, a slightly different approach. Um, and, and the two work together quite nicely. And I think over COVID, um, what you know, something I've personally learned is actually, you know, the detail is important, um, and it, it is really important to have those backup plans. As I said, and I think it's something that's, that's invaluable, really. And of course, you've worked in your industry since around about the year two thousand and six, so quite a long time now. Um, are there any sort of experiences that you've had pre-COVID, or any people perhaps that you've worked with or for that have perhaps had an impact on you and the way that you lead? Would you say, looking back? So, so Charles, who was the uh, previous MD of our practice, um, very sort of similar leadership style, sort of quite laid back, I would say, um, and, uh, and I think that was something that. Um, really um really helped i mean if, if i look at kind of leadership and um and go right back and, and think back actually where a lot of my ambitions for leadership started was actually with um the air cadet organization when i was when i was younger um because um obviously there's a lot of leadership training and um, exercises that you do within that um and uh i was yeah i, I grew in confidence from a sort of 14 year old boy who, who wasn't very confident in the kind of a leadership role to actually being um, quite happy leading a team. And, and I think uh, when I look back, that's probably the, the start of it, really. Mm. And I think um, having sort of reflected on the past there, I mean, it only serves that we talk a little bit about the uh, the future as well. Um, so just before we do wrap things up, James, because I'm conscious that we're beginning to run short of time on the uh, the programme today. Um, I was initially yeah. wondering, um, for the next sort of 12 to 14 months, what is it that you're really hoping to achieve at your business? And where do you want Western Building Consultants to be this time in a year? Hopefully now that we have a clear route out of COVID social restrictions. Yeah, I mean, um, really, um, we're, we're still planning for growth. Um, I mean, we're sort of thinking hopefully longer term than, than a year. We're sort of looking five to ten years. We, we'd like to be an organization where we have 100 people um, working for us. Um, that will involve kind of st- 
stretching into new markets and um, sort of third sector stuff that we, we don't really do at the moment. Um, so that that's where we're sort of pushing forward in the next year is seeing if we can kind of break into some of those markets um, and, and really sort of help expand the team through through that. That's great. And lastly, uh, James, um, we've talked about, again, younger viewers and younger entrepreneurs there and how it's good for them at this point in time to be seeking out more experienced people. But as an established business leader yourself, what other piece of advice would you give them to really get them on the road to success in a time of economic hardship? Yeah, I think I think one big thing is, is don't get, give up and, and stay positive and, and really try to focus as much positive energy as you can because um, I think as soon as you have any bit of kind of negative energy, that can flow through a team and it can be really hard to, to develop. And, and that's something that um, I've learned to actually in our, our recruitment strategies is that actually finding people with those positive mentalities to help drive your business forward as well is really, really important. It's absolutely critical, isn't it? Um, I think that's very, very sound advice indeed. Um, I do, of course, wish yourself and the business all the best in those ambitions of growth, James, because there is room for optimism now that we can see hopefully a clearer route out of uh, the pandemic. And I think actually, as we also start to see things taking more shape, it would be great to catch up on the show in future and have you back on the programme just so we can discuss at what point then the economy is starting to uh, to grow and um, how the business is getting on too. Yeah, fantastic. Um, it would be my Excellent. pleasure, James. It's been wonderful to have you on the uh, the show uh, this morning. And thanks once again uh, for your time to join us. Um, and also, no just because um, we are um, just still not quite out of the woods yet with this, um, do please take care and stay safe with all still going on. Um, it was a pleasure for me to welcome James Dean, entrepreneur, business leader and MD at Western Building Consultants onto the programme today. Uh, coming up next on the show, we'll be hearing from incumbent Leaders Council Chairman and former Education Secretary, Lord David Blunkett. That will be coming up on the show next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able Mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak 
uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative. They're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and productivity and and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself, and there's been ups and downs, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's 
commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm-hmm. But actually, I think there's a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, We may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taking them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead Mm. or people being told that they shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, 
I'm terribly sorry. We, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, The health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated 
to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh- um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think now aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy not just national economy but also the world economy um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move, and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up 
not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who 
responded magnificently. Let's try and get back. Perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr. Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince 
sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learnt from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from Mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, thank you for coming on the the program. It's been an absolute pleasure and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.